Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. We highlight keen investment insights and strategies so you can become a real estate mogul. Here's your host, Yannick Kujo Virgin. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Yannick Cujo Virgil. I'm very excited for our guest today. Our guest today is John Kasman. Now, John is a real estate entrepreneur who partnered with busy professionals to invest in over $100 million worth of apartments. And John also consults active multifamily investors to help them start or grow their business. He is also the host of Multifamily Insights Podcast, formerly Target Market Insights, and is the co-creator of the Midwest Real Estate Networking Summit. And prior to becoming a full-time real estate investor, John worked in corporate America, overseeing marketing campaigns for General Motors, Nike, and Coors Light. So, John, thank you so much for being on the show today. Hey, Yannick, thanks for having me today, man. I, I love watching your video clips on LinkedIn and other places. So I'm excited to be a guest today and share some of my insights with your audience. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's dive into it. You have a great background. You have a lot of experience in commercial real estate. Give our listeners today a little bit backstory about who you are and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so I spent 15 years uh, in corporate America doing marketing and advertising for some of the companies and brands that you mentioned earlier, and I really enjoyed it. You know, I loved what I was doing. I loved, you know, advertising and coming up with strategies and creative, and I really enjoyed all of that. The downside for me is I just didn't control my own time. And on top of not controlling my own time, you know, it's one of those things where you can absolutely get aged out in advertising. You know, you don't really think about being aged out in business, but advertising is a young man's game. So, you know, at at a certain point, you know, it's a numbers game. You start making a lot of money. The way the structures of the salaries are are set up, there's a scope of work and, you know, you only can have so many hours. FTEs is what they call them, full-time equivalents. So not to bore your (laughs) listeners with all that, but the bottom line is I realized that I was going to go from being an asset to almost a liability, even though I had great experience, knowledge, all those kind of things, you know, at some point it becomes a numbers game. And I didn't want to spend the rest of my career, the second part of my career, you know, chasing from company to company. So I looked into real estate and real estate was an avenue that was really attractive to me. I really got into real estate back in 2007, 2008, not as an investor, but my interest really, really peaked at that time because I was at General Motors when we went through bankruptcy. And I watched my colleagues go through it. I watched my peers get let go. And at that time, I was on the other end of the spectrum where I was younger, you know, lower salary. So they needed somebody to do the work. And guess what? John was more than happy to step in and, and do that. But I also recognized that, you know, when I looked at those folks who were more senior, they didn't seem as happy uh, just in general with their lives, even though they were making way more money than I was making. And I also felt that there was almost uh, a liability to it where they had those golden handcuffs and couldn't leave. So at that moment, I kind of realized, you know what, I never really want to be just tied to this. And I want to figure out how do I create my own path? And real estate really was the thing for my research that I found as the tool, as kind of that outlet 
to allow me to have more control in. And that's something we try to share with other people now where they don't necessarily have to invest themselves or go out there and find properties, but they can partner with groups like ours and get all the benefits of owning real estate without the headaches of being a landlord. Wonderful story. Wonderful story. I'm sure that it was tough to see people get laid off and, and, and fired. And I mean, I've never been through that, but I'm sure that that had a lot to do with you actually making that decision, didn't it? It, it did. And I mean, for context, you know, I've heard people say, oh, you're so brave. No, I wasn't. I was young in my career, right? Literally, it was. I was two years removed from, I think, um, graduating school. So for me, I was young in my career. And when you start to map out, you know, your future and your career, in, in some ways, I was ahead of schedule. You know, I wasn't, I thought I'd be on the agency side and then go client side a little bit later. And I ended up going client side much earlier. So while I was there, I just started to look around and the, the beauty of going through bankruptcy, at least the way we did it, was it was really drawn out. You know, I'm not sure how many people remember, but it wasn't like some of these companies that file chapter 11, you know, they make an announcement one day, they file chapter 11 and then boom, they start closing stuff. Right. This was a very structured bankruptcy. So uh, there was an election year. There was a whole lot of talk about what was going to happen. The financial industry started to crumble right after, you know, the automotive industry crumbled. And that's when the bailouts took place. Right. And there was a bailout. And part of that bailout was a structured bankruptcy. So we really had like six to 12 months of seeing this coming and waiting for it to happen and, you know, living with this. So think about that anxiety every day for yeah. like a year, a year and a half. You know, I went to work not knowing what was going to happen with my company reading the headlines, not just reading the headlines, watching my boss's boss on CNN, on Fox News, mm -hmm. on MSNBC, talking about the state of the business and more directly and selfishly, the status of my job, right? So when you're watching that every day, you just have to figure out a solution. And for me, it was like, all right, you can stay here and grind it out, you know, and just hope for the best. You can go, you know, find another job and, you know, just work through whatever situations there. But again, I had a year to process this. And every day, I just slowly you start to think about different things. And what I started to realize is that, you know, it is a bit of a hamster wheel. And the only way to get off the hamster wheel is to actually get off, you know, just moving from one wheel to another wheel doesn't really change the situation. And what helped me was, one, there was a gentleman I remember who got let go and he was completely blindsided by it. And he had worked for the company for like 22 years. He was what we call a lifer. You know, his goal was he was going to retire that company. And he left us a voice message that was really touching and emotional. And he was obviously very, very hurt. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I feel really bad for him. And I hope he is able to land on his feet. But I also thought for myself, like, you know what? You need to make plans so you're never in that situation. And, and then I thought about who was happy at the company. And there was one guy who was happy every day. Dude walked in with a smile. He was easygoing. I mean, we're, we're all worried about our jobs and, and our livelihoods. And this dude's like just, you know, bumping around and, and very happy, an older guy. And what I learned is he owned real estate and he owned some properties. He owned some stuff out in Utah. He had some various properties all over the country. And for him, he, he did the job because he enjoyed it. He loved what he was doing. And that's the reason he was there, but he was financially independent, you know? So the takeaway for me was, you know what? You want to be more like this guy. 
not the person who has a higher title because he wasn't, you know, he was like a manager, but he wasn't a director or a senior director or anything like that. So it made me realize that, hey, it's not all about the title. It really is more about the lifestyle you can create, the lifestyle you can live based on the way you work your money. So that kind of took me down a little bit of a different path than maybe some of my old colleagues and peers. That's wonderful that you, especially at an early age, were able to know that, you know, because a lot of people don't, they don't run into situations like that unless something catastrophic happens for the most part, right? I yeah. mean, it's something that nobody wants to be a part of, but, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, real estate just gives you choices, you know, cash flow gives you choices. I think it's one of those businesses where it's like, you can still do if you want to, right? You can technically still work a job, but having those streams of income on the side to supplement some of the things that might happen that you can't control because ultimately you're really under the stroke of a pen, right? When you work for someone else, right? When you work a job, yes, you know, it's a steady income, but at any moment, for the most part, for most people, you're only as good as maybe your last day, right? Or you're, you're only as good as until someone is willing to fire you, right? To lay you off. So I think kudos to you for being able to like know that early on, because I'm sure that has, you know, tremendously helped your trajectory in the real estate space just by starting early. Yeah, it, it has. And I think to your point, right. And you, you know, you got come from a very competitive landscape as well. And advertising and marketing is pretty competitive in the business sense. And, you know, that same notion of you're only as good as kind of your last performance. It's very true. I mean, we were, when I moved from the client side to the agency side, one of the reasons I made that transition was I wanted to be more entrepreneurial. I wanted to be in an environment where you kind of ate what you killed, you know, on a client side. I mean, listen, you know, you can duck and hide in corners and you could keep that job for a good 15, 20 years if you wanted to. Right. Doesn't mean you can't get promoted that way, but you can stay employed for a long period of time. But in the agency world, you have to be able to you know, ideate, be creative, solve problems, you know, find deals, you know, find clients, find new business, sell yourself. All those are skills that helped me become a better entrepreneur and ultimately better real estate investor. And I thought it was really important to develop and hone those skills as opposed to simply just sitting comfortable with what I already had. So you're right. Those things absolutely helped me to become a better investor and to put myself in a position to surround myself with folks who had it. Because one thing is, I, I didn't really know anybody in real estate. This isn't that long ago when the Stone Age, but you know, uh, there weren't as many podcasts. YouTube had just really launched. So it wasn't like I could just sit there and take in all this information and go out and buy properties. And keep in mind, this is like 2008, 2009, 2010. Well, I was in high school back then. <laughs> yeah. Anybody I knew who had real estate was like trying to fire sell it. Right. No one's like, oh, yeah, let's scoop it all up. They're like, man, are you crazy? You want to buy this one? And I'm like, mm, I don't think this is the right time to buy. So it took me to build my own confidence and knowledge to get comfortable. And that's one good lesson I'll tell everybody right now in this environment. You know, there are a lot of people who are scared right now with the economy and where things are heading. And a lot of times what happens is this is where the deals and opportunities come up. But you have to have a long view. You have to invest for the long run and not just the, the temporary time frame and trying to time the market. So that really helped us, too, because by the time we got started, actually investing was really when the time we kind of felt like, hey, it had bottomed up, bottomed out and the market was starting to pick up. So we bought our first investment in 2012 
after you know learning about it and researching and you know trying to do everything i can to prepare myself for the better part of two and a half almost three years you know it's tremendous how you were able to pivot in the midst of turmoil and a lot of chaos probably going on within the company yeah no yannick i was just gonna say i think one quick clarification is that it wasn't a fast pivot right and that's the beauty of real estate and, and being able to invest in different strategies is i slowly started doing this on the side so i didn't quit my job or anything like that at that point i just started investing that first investment was just a two unit you know i bought a duplex yeah. lived in one unit rented out the other unit so it's not like it has to be a hard pivot or hard transition but if this is something that you want as a part of your financial future or another you know tool in a tool belt asset class diversify your income there's some ways you can get started with that that don't require you to quit what you're doing already. And that was really the, the key for me was being able to add it on the side so I can learn it, continue to dabble with it, continue to you know, get stronger at that. And then ultimately, as I built that over time, it started to play a bigger role. I tell people all the time, you know, your job can be your biggest business partner when you start off. I never advise people to just quit cold turkey and jump into the world of real estate. You know, there is a lot of risk to that. And, you know, obviously you get the time back, but a lot of times that W-2 income can fund a lot of those transactions and balance sheets and, and things that you might need to get qualified for a loan before you jump out and become a full-time investor. I think that's something that I wanted to point out. That's really important point that you pointed out just now. Yeah, absolutely, man. I think it's spot on. And just, again, be don't be in such a rush to change your life that you jump over key steps in the process. So create a plan work your plan and then you know take that leap once you have everything in place and you're very clear on what you're going to do with that extra time don't just jump into it and, and then say okay now what like you want to make sure you're very clear on how you grow and how you scale great advice you talked about you know real estate as a long-term view and obviously there's a lot going on in the real estate market today i'd love to get your thoughts on you know how you view the commercial real estate market today and you know, maybe how you're raising capital in today's environment as well. Yeah, the real estate is still a great asset class. You know, obviously we're talking about inflation and the impact that's had on interest rates and, you know, the Fed's decision to try to do everything they can to slow down inflation. But the reality is the fundamentals of when I say real estate, I'm really focusing more on multifamily, but the fundamentals are still very strong. You know, there's still a housing shortage. There's still strong demand. Rents are actually still going up. And we are seeing really good appetite for apartments. Now, when you start to forecast out in the future, there is some softening that's coming. You know, um, we're seeing more units come online um, as apartment builders and developers are finishing up projects they started, you know, a few years ago. So we're seeing more of that starting to come online. So you should see uh, maybe a little bit of a, an uptick in vacancy and things like that. But in general, I still see it strong. Uh, I think the key for investors today is to make sure they revisit their fundamentals, look at cash flow, make sure they're buying in in solid, strong, you know, high demand areas or areas that are at least seeing improvement. You want to make sure that you have a solid business plan, you know, that you're going in and you're able to create value. And then I think most importantly, when it comes to your loan, making sure you control that exit. There's going to be some flexibility and whether you're using bridge debt or you know, using fixed debt, I think you just have to have the right business plan for that property. A lot of times people talk in, in broad strokes and say, oh, I'm not going to use any bridge debt or, hey, you know, I, I don't really like fixed debt because I want to be able to sell and exit whenever. I think you just have to have the right business plan for that property and then understand where the risks are, 
And then you have to ask yourself, well, how do I mitigate this potential risk? So that's really the way we're looking at it. We're still buyers. We're still active in this market. Um, we are starting to see more opportunities that fall in line with where we think the value is. For a lo long time, you know, we would get talk to brokers and they would tell us where they think a deal is going to trade and we're not close to it. And then it trades for even higher than what the broker thought it was going to trade for. Uh, but we are starting to see it where it's now more coming in line with where we think the value is. So we expect to be buyers in this next cycle. We expect to find and uncover more opportunities and we look forward to bringing those opportunities to investors in our network. Yeah. Fundamentals are really important, I think, in this cycle today because you know, there are a lot of people that are trying to do, you know, a lot to make deals pencil or, you know, be aggressive on their maybe rental rates and have a, you know, an aggressive, um, you know, exit cap rate. But I think, you know, in today's environment, I think this cycle is kind of going to weed out some of the folks who are just getting in to make deals pencil and get out versus the ones who are really focusing on a solid business plan, solid fundamentals. I think those folks are going to have a better time during this cycle because one, one, I think the days of, and this is probably my opinion, right? A couple of years ago, you know, you'd probably underwrite multifamily and you'd probably get away with being conservative on every single number. I think in today's environment where there's a ton of capital in the play, things have obviously become more and more competitive. And so Yes, you'd still do want to remain conservative within your underwriting from an approach perspective. But I think now more than ever, because there's been a ton of capital on the back end to maybe buy out some of these guys who didn't weren't right on their rents or um, didn't really execute well on their business plan, but had someone else willing to pay more for the property on the back end. I think this cycle is really going to weed out the difference between people who are just getting in to just get out versus the ones who can really execute and and really prove that they have a solid strategy. If your business plan is hoping someone bails you out by just buying it at a, a high price point and, and believing in their quote unquote value at upside, then yes, you're going to have some challenges. I mean, there, there's, there has to be a solid plan in place. You're going to need to be able to operate and then you're going to be able to navigate whatever the, the market conditions are. So, you know, for us, we try to focus a little bit more on what we can control, which is, you know, the way we underwrite deals, how many deals we look at, you know, our relationships, you know, the way we operate the deals we do have. And, you know, the market's going to do what the market does. You know, if, if more deals come our way or we're, we're able to see more deals because of some of the challenges that you mentioned with other operators, then so be it. Maybe there are some unique strategies we can employ to get involved and take advantage of some deals, you know, before they maybe go to the market. But for us, it, it really just comes down to, trying to control what we can control and helping our investors the best we can, which is finding good deals where they can grow their money. I agree. And, and all we can really do is control what we can control, right? Yeah. You know, we still want to do deals. We still, I mean, that's really how we get paid is by doing deals. But I think uh, fundamentals is extremely important. And how are you kind of structuring deals as well? I guess, are you seeing like a lot of creative structures, like loan assumptions to make deals pencil or you know, how is it challenging for you right now in today's capital markets to make deals pencil? So, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we we feel like it's been a challenge for years just because of the competition. So when we talk about working with investors and deal structures, I think we're always open minded to, hey, what's best for this deal? What are investors looking for and how do we structure in a way where our interests are aligned? That's what we're really shooting for. Right. We want to make sure that investors feel comfortable 
working with us, investing with us, and that we get paid if we execute so that they can sleep at night knowing that we're going to do everything we can to make sure this deal performs. Because if not, we don't really get kind of uh, our, our slice of the pie. So they know that we're out there busting our tail to make those deals happen and to make sure those deals come to life. So for us, we always want to be a little bit fluid in you know, the specifics of that, we we still do like prefer returns where possible. You know, we are seeing more opportunities where sellers are open to seller carrybacks. So that's a situation where you may buy a property for a certain number, but maybe that current owner reinvestor leaves in a little bit of money, maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars, maybe it's a, a portion of the total raise so that it's a little bit easier for you to hit those return metrics. So all those things help. And depending on the situation, I think the best thing you can do is be a problem solver. And right now, there are problems that some investors have, some owners have. So it gives you the opportunity to be more creative. If you go back last year, people weren't really trying to hear those situations, right? Because the problem wasn't anything that unique. There was somebody out there who was willing to just pay more money because there was cheap debt available. So now when you take that off the table, now, if that owner really wants to hit this number or they want to solve a problem, they need to exit a deal, they need to cash out investors, whatever it is, without they have to be more creative in how they solve their problem. Because before they didn't really have a problem. You know, I have a property, it's in high demand. Somebody's going to pay me the number I want. If it's not you, who cares? I got 20 other people lined up ready to pay it, right? And in this environment, that's not the case. So you can be a little bit more creative with that structure. Yeah, totally agree. I think now more than ever is an opportune time to really open up that toolkit and open up that ability to be a transaction engineer and figure out how deals work, you know, in the best light possible. So I couldn't agree anymore. Hey, listen up. If you're an employee, business owner, or professional athlete with money in the bank earning 0% return, and you're thinking about passively investing in real estate, Well, you need to check out our ultimate syndication guide for passive investors. This free guide absolutely covers everything you need to know about passively investing in real estate syndication or just real estate in general. If you want access to this valuable resource, go to MerlinAcquisitions.com slash passive guide to download the free syndication guide for passive investors. That's M-E-R-L-Y-N-N acquisitions.com slash passive guide or head over to the show notes and click the link to download. Now let's get back to the show. So how are you finding markets? I love to segue into, you know, finding good markets in today's environment. Yes, rents are going up. You know, we're starting to see on a national level, I think as well, it kind of moderate compared to where things were maybe last year where it was above average. Like, how are you finding good, solid markets to invest in today that would kind of carry you through this cycle or however it, you know, we end up in the commercial real estate space? Yeah, that's a great question. It's really uh, both important and relevant to kind of how I was able to grow our business and it kind of ties in everything else that we do. When I was in Chicago still, and I was ready to scale into multifamily, I bought an eight unit building and that eight unit building did okay. You know, I had some hiccups here and there, but I did okay with it. But that was my first commercial property. And one of the reasons I did that was to prove to myself that we could invest in commercial and I could manage a property management company. And it would set me up for really scaling and working with other investors. So that eight unit was just myself and my wife, but then we started to work with other investors. The challenge that I faced when I was looking to make that transition is I realized the deals that I were I was doing, 
if I bring on investors, the numbers just didn't work in the areas of Chicago I was looking in. So trying to figure out where to invest and how to identify which markets and which sub-markets, that was something that I had to really focus on. And I had my mentor and other people around me who I was listening to and learning from, but I really felt like the things they were doing, the strategies they were using, they just didn't work in my markets. You know, you can't take a, a, a Texas approach and put it into Cincinnati. So part of what I had to do was really learn how to find the best places to invest. So I launched my podcast at that time called Target Market Insights, and it was rooted in how to find the best places to invest. Since then, we've rebranded the show to be Multifamily Insights, so it's more encompassing, but that market research element was a fundamental core of what we were doing. So to answer your question directly, for me, what I do is I like to understand what's happening at the macro level with markets, but then I have to also put in the, you know, the realistic, tangible component. You know, where am I located? How easy is it going to be for me to manage properties in this area? You know, can, do I have a competitive advantage here? Can I get out to the area to, to network and build relationships? So so we focus on a two hour radius of Cincinnati and I live in Cincinnati. So, you know, this is a, this is a pretty solid market, I like this market a lot. Um, think about Louisville, Indianapolis, Columbus. Those are the areas where we spend most of our time starting to get into Tennessee as well. And for us, the practicality is, well, hey, we can get to these markets fairly quickly. I used to live in Chicago, so I have a soft spot in my heart for Chicago. I'm from Cleveland, born and raised in Cleveland, love the city. I don't do those cities because they don't fit some of the other parameters that we look for. One is going to be, we want a place that is easy to do business, but we also want a place where the population is growing. And in those markets, the population is stagnant at best. And really, when you look at the data, um, they've been declining in market. Now, there's some markets where you are seeing growth, but generally speaking, the overall MSA population, MSA is Metro Statistical Area, that part of it has been shrinking. So we want to see demand. You know, I want to see more demand. I want to see more people moving into an area so that there's more people who would potentially want to live in my apartment unit. So that's one of the things that I always look for is, hey, what's what's the growth? What's the population growth? Are jobs growing in that area? That's going to help me make a decision. I also yeah. want to understand how easy is it to do business in this area? Is it landlord friendly? Is it business friendly? That's going to continue to spur growth versus areas where maybe they're not you know, encouraging that growth. And if you're not really encouraging growth, then you're kind of making it easy for someone to take business elsewhere. So those are the kind of things that we typically look for. If you are, you know, if someone's listening to this and are trying to figure out well, where should I invest, I would start with which markets are you familiar with? You know, where'd you go to college? You know, where have you lived? Where do you have family? Where do you have strong friends and other relationships? Start with those markets and then start doing a little search on it. You know, learn what's going on, what's going on with the population, what's going on with the jobs, who are the major employers, what are the major industries that are driving it? And then use that to kind of, you know, be your initial research and then figure out from there, you know, where are the deals? You know, how many transactions happen in this market? Who are the key brokers? Who are the key team members that you need to have? But now you can start to dig really into the weeds to say, okay, hey, this is a great market for me to invest in. Uh, because just because population is growing, sometimes the competition is growing too. And that doesn't mean you're going to get deals just because you're in a market that's just seeing a uh, population growth. Yeah, that's a wonderful deep dive approach of how to find great deals. I think anyone who is trying to find good markets to invest in that potentially have those good deals to follow, I think that is a great approach to starting small, right? You mentioned starting in you know where you know, maybe your backyard and, and then just kind of growing 
two hours out, three hours out, because it's might be easier for you to kind of manage a two to three hour property versus a 10 hour property right across the country. So I, I totally agree with you with that. And then even if you could, the, the question is, how are you going to get that property? Because you also have to have the relationships in place in that market with the brokers, with the property management people, with their team members. And the reality is, is that there's somebody in, you know, Florida or whatever, you know, Phoenix who can sit and just go take that, that broker to, to lunch whenever they feel like it versus me having to, you know, schedule it, hop on a plane, get there. And oh, if they can't do it, well, now I'm screwed, right? Because I just <laughs> bought this flight to come, you know, schmooze with a, bro with a broker and they had to reschedule. So it's just the reality as you start thinking through the the actual logistics of it, uh, it becomes really challenging the further you go out. Now, if you have boots on the ground, it's different because maybe that's someone else's role to build those local relationships. But if that's your role, you have to bring in the practicality of, you know, developing really relationships, finding deals and opportunities in these markets, but also doing whatever it takes to really learn those markets and, and create that foundation. I totally agree 100 percent. You can burn a lot of time in commercial real estate, private equity if you don't have the right foundations. I mean, but even when I was starting off, you know, to your point, I was I'm based in in Maryland. So I was looking at deals all the way down in Florida I had nobody in Florida, maybe a Texas, you know, had no one in Texas. And I was just burning and turning my wheels for a long time. And then I stumbled into, you know, someone that told me similar to what you're saying, right? Start where you are. Start where you know and just kind of branch out and build your resources in line with your ability to execute on on those transactions, you know. Um, so that's a really, really great approach to finding good markets. Did you move to Cincinnati to like be in that situation so you'd be able to be around the markets that you're in? Because I, I know that you said that you you were born in Cleveland, but you moved to Chicago and then now you're back in you know Cincinnati. Yeah, man, I've lived all over the Midwest. So born in Cleveland, went to school in Dayton, lived in Detroit, you know, moved to Chicago and, and now here in Cincinnati. Yes and no. I mean, the real reason we moved to Cincinnati is um, my wife's from here and her family's here. So we knew that would be a reason. With that said, that's also one of the reasons that I said, you know what, I think Cincinnati would be a good market for me, even when I lived in Chicago, because I knew at some point we would probably move here. And at that time, I still had, you know, we had family here. So I, you know, I could call her sister and say, hey, can you go to this property? Just check it out. Just give me a top line. Does it, you know, what's the neighborhood like? What do you think of it? Before I just write this offer sight unseen, at least have somebody there who could give me their gut feel of, oh, it's a rough area or, hey, you know, this looks great or there's this here or whatever. Right. So that's always helpful to have a little bit of that context. But I would say, too, even on the market and what you said, one other thing. And listen, this is a powerful insight because this I wasted maybe a year looking for deals and I didn't process this component of what I'm about to tell you. When you create your criteria and you know what you're looking for, you kind of have to understand what the market has. And if you're in the Northeast or the Midwest, particularly older, more established areas, you can't go with the criteria that investors use in the Southeast region, meaning mm. a 1990s property or, you know, 1980s 1990s 2000s properties whatever other you know metrics you have for a 20 unit some of those don't exist you know in a market like cincinnati in the midwest where most of the development the last kind of wave of development took place in the 60s and 70s you don't have as many 1980s 1990s 
construction properties. And the ones that have been made are either further out in the suburbs or they're traded amongst sometimes insiders. And you may not just be privy to that. So unlike, you know, maybe uh, again, down in Georgia or Alabama or Florida or Texas, where those properties exist and you can buy a 30 unit that was built in 1995 and it's, you know, decently priced, they didn't exist. So even five years ago, when I was searching for my criteria, I didn't ask the question, say, hey, how many of these actually exist? <laughs> how many of these <laughs> sell every year? Am I fishing for this unicorn? And that's what I was doing. So sometimes when you're making your list, actually look around at what is in front of you. If you don't see what you're trying to buy, you either need to change your list or change markets because sometimes it just doesn't exist and you're, you're going out shopping for something that has been out of stock or was never created. And you can waste a lot of time looking for something that quite frankly doesn't exist. Yeah, man. I, I love that you said that because that actually happened to me, right? I had this goal that I wanted to vertically integrate in Baltimore city. I had this criteria. It was like, Oh, 1980s built, you know, C-class affordable, you know, all the whole nine. Right. And I looked at my market and I'm just like, well, I keep seeing all these deals in Texas being transacted, right? Or I had this, you know, goal to hey, I, you know, we want to scale, we want to do 150, 200 unit plus deals. And I'm seeing all these properties, same built, 200, 300, 150 unit deals. A lot of those are being traded in Texas right now, those Southeast markets, the Sunbelt region, right? What you just said is definitely a very, um, relatable tip that you just gave as well that I stumbled upon when I first started in this multifamily space. And I think a lot of our listeners today who are like struggling to develop their criteria and just trying to figure out, you know, how can I get my first deal? I want to get into a big deal, but my market, you know, I keep seeing a 10 unit, a 20 unit, or it's like, you know, a 300 unit, right? I think that is a very deep insight and I, we, we keep touching on the, the insights thing. And obviously you have a multifamily insights podcast, but I can see now where that came from, where that developed from was your knowledge and your expertise about diving into the specifics to be successful. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, I, I like you, I spent a lot of time in that and looking back, it's one of those things you're like, oh man, how did you miss this? <laughs> but, you know, sometimes you have to know the right questions to ask and you can look for something and people will answer the questions you ask them. But if you didn't ask the right questions, it's kind of on you. So that's just one of those little insider tips, particularly for my folks in the Midwest and the Northeast region, because I think we see all the deals people do in Florida and Texas and these other regions and you go out looking for it in yours. And we don't really process that the Midwest and Northeast is simply older than the West Coast and the Southeast. So those development booms happened, you know, in the 70s and 80s for those regions, which is why it's easier to find properties there than it is in a city like Baltimore or in a city like Cincinnati, where you drive around the city of Cincinnati, you're not seeing some 2000s construction, you know, 50 unit or 100 unit apartment complex in the city. No, like the, the, they never built them. The city was built 100 plus years ago, right? So you're going to see stuff 50, 60, 80, 100 years old in the core of the city. So you kind of have to shift your mentality, at least to understand what you're looking for. Yeah. And that's a, a wonderful, wonderful tip that I think anyone 
who is in the real estate space can really benefit from, because I think that is what separates the good between the great, in my opinion. So let's touch on your marketing background, right? You have a lot of experience in the marketing space, and I'm sure that that was very monumental in your ability to develop a strong brand just from, you know, your background and, you know, maybe for someone who is transitioning into the real estate space, how can our listeners today develop a personal brand? You have a podcast, you have coaching opportunities as well, but you consult with, you know, active multifamily investors. How important is that strong personal brand and and how does that help you raise capital today as well? Having a strong brand is important, but I wanted to clarify something because I think people hear a word like brand and they go into, oh, he knows how to market himself. He knows how to create content and put himself out there. That has nothing to do with a brand. Okay. Everyone has a brand, whether you want to admit it or not, because a brand is just simply what people think of you when you're not in the room to tell them who you are yourself. So, What's that impression that they get of you? You know, are you someone that they trust, that they believe in? Are you a hard worker? Are you someone that's reliable? Are you someone who, you know, is a real estate investor? Are you a CPA? Are you an attorney? It's whatever people think of you, right? If I say Nike, uh, you say some of the brands I worked on, Coors Light, Mountain Dew, whatever you think of them, that's the brand to you, right? So it's whatever you think. It has nothing to do with the advertising. Now, the advertising and marketing can help to create that messaging and the imagery and that association. But if you don't like one of those products or brands, it doesn't matter. That's what your perception is. And that's what you're going to feel. So we all need to be actively crafting our personal brand, especially in this era, you know, where, you know, people can work remotely now and everything is virtual and digital. And it's just so much easier to convey a message and build relationships and stand out than it was, you know, in the old days where you literally had to go attend networking events and shake hands with everybody there and grab every business card you can get, right? So building a personal brand has been monumental. And one of the things for me that was challenging is I'm used to being on the other side of the table, right? Uh, I'm not used to having this camera on me. I'm used to being behind the camera. I'm used to developing a strategy, coming up with a business plan, understanding who we're talking to, what we're trying to convey to them, understanding the impact we expect this to have on our reach, on our awareness, on our overall business. And when you are the person that you know, you're put in front of the camera, it's hard because you know you and you've got your own biases, you have your own insecurities, right? And you don't maybe, you know, some people don't like the way they talk or sound. Some people don't like the way they look on camera. So you can just start making up all these excuses, right? And the reality is, you have to get over that to an extent. You do want to put your best foot forward. You want to put yourself in the best light. So I would say when it comes to building a personal brand, you have to start with your highlights. What do you do well? Maybe you're an awesome writer. Maybe you can you know, think of concepts and convey them in a way in the written form that is very articulate and allows people to process something, make very, very complex ideas in a way that you know, comes across as a simple concept, you know, in the way you're able to convey it. So maybe that's your thing. Maybe you're a great speaker, you know, you're a great orator and you can convey things verbally in a way that allows people to connect. You have a very engaging voice. Maybe you're great at video. Maybe you've got great personality. You jump off the screen and you snatch people's attention, right? So whatever it is that you do, you want to highlight that and use that to be kind of a way to grow. So when we talk about a personal brand, one of the things that we like to do is find a way to have a stage. 
And if you can create a stage, now you can create an audience. And with that audience, you can now grow your business. So for us, that's really important. What we're doing right here, this is a stage, right? I'm on your podcast. We're talking to potential investors or folks interested in real estate. And maybe from listening to this conversation, they can get to know me a little bit better. And then maybe they want to go to our website, download our sample deal package, get on our newsletter. And maybe at some point in the future, we do some business together. But they get to make that decision for themselves. And I think that's the cool thing about it. I don't have to put pressure on myself to say, all right, I got to come over here and sell myself to people. No, I just need to tell you how I can help you, the kind of people we help. And then you decide whether or not that's something that you're interested in learning more about. Just like I can't force you to go out there and buy Mountain Dew or Nike or any other product. I can't tell you who this is for, how it can help you. And you get to decide whether or not you want to move forward with, you know, trying it out. So a personal brand is something that I think everyone should control because it allows you to figure out who do you want to attract in your life. And attraction is really, really powerful. So that's what I would push people to do. If you want to grow, if you want to get into this space, if you want to work with people, you want them to want to work with you, not the other way around where you're pushing yourself on people. And I'm not a sales guy. I've never been a sales guy. And what I mean by that is to say, I'm not going to be the pushy person, try to force you or convince you to do something. Listen, we can either help you or we can, you know, I can answer questions for you. I can share information with you, but you ultimately have to come to your own conclusion that working with us can help you reach your goals. I can only answer questions and give you information about those things so that you feel comfortable with it. And because of that, focusing on attraction makes it much easier. Let me paint an example for you real quick. Let's say that I was getting ready to open a bakery. I love baking cakes and pies and whatever else, and I'm opening a bakery. If you're my friend and I call you and I say, hey, man, I'm opening up this bakery. I need you to order 12 sheet cakes so I can get my business running. You're probably like, dude, I don't need 12 sheet cakes. What are you talking about? Like, Why would I buy 12 sheet? I mean, yeah, I want to support you, but I don't need 12 sheet cakes. So that strategy doesn't work. And when people think about raising money, a lot of times that's the lens they come with. You know, I'm going to call all these people I know and ask them to invest. The reality is you want to attract investors and to, to attract them, you have to actually be able to add value to them. So instead, what I might do is I might say, hey, Yannick, I'm opening up this bakery. I know you, you know, play ball. You might have some relationships. Well, listen, I'm trying to help people who are gluten free. You know, they got a sweet tooth, but they want something that doesn't have a lot of fat in it. It doesn't have a lot of sugar in it. Right. So if you know anyone who is looking for something like that, you know, we work best with large parties, large venues, anyone who's getting married soon, anyone having an anniversary, graduation party, any kind of celebration at the holiday party. I will love to have a conversation with them and share with them what we do and maybe give them a sample of our, our products, right? Now you can go through your mental Rolodex and say, you know what? Not a fit for me, but my cousin's going to be graduating in the spring. And I know that my aunt's planning a big party for him. You should talk to my aunt, right? That's a more favorable way of attracting people to you because it's warm introductions and they understand what it is you do. That same business, well, guess what? If I'm clear on who I help and how I help them and what problem they have in the marketplace, well, now I know where to go talk to them too. If again, I'm looking for something that's gluten-free and you know sugar-free, but still has a great taste, well, I'm going to go find those communities of people and I'm going to tell them, hey, we got this product that you've been looking for. And it's the same kind of thing with any business, right? So 
for me, it's recognizing that real estate is another business, just like we helped so many other brands in my life. It took me a few years to process that because I thought real estate was like construction and property management. And just like that was it. You got to learn cost per square foot on all these things. You got to learn how to lay tile and and you got to learn contract law and all, all these things that I was really studying and getting good at. And then I kind of finally stepped back and realized that, wow, it's it's another business. Just like I didn't know anything about the beer industry. I didn't know anything about the car industry other than what my dad taught me. I didn't know anything about, you know, the soda beverage in industry. We call it pop. I'm from Cleveland. So we call it pop, right? <laughs> the pop industry. Uh, I didn't know anything about those industries. So I had to learn those industries and then take the knowledge of, you know, communications and messaging and bring all that to the forefront so that we could figure out how to position our clients to be successful reaching their intended audience. So it's the same kind of thing. And it's helped me tremendously, but I will tell you where it really helps is for other investors, particularly active investors who are looking to grow and they're maybe scared or they're not comfortable calling the people closest to them to say, hey, would you invest with me? You want to be able to reach out to people beyond those immediate people. And that is something we help people with so they can figure out who should you be talking to? What do you need to say to them? And how do you position yourself to grow and to help those people so that it is a mutually benefiting relationship? I love that, man. I love that. That was a wonderful explanation about how to really grow your your personal brand. I think much of real estate success, in my opinions, is the difference between the hard skills and the soft skills. I think the hard skills is the underwriting, the construction, like you said, all the hard work that really we can do, but we really don't want to do, right? But it's a part of the business. But I think the soft skills, I mean, even to your point about creating a personal brand, the soft skills of being able to leverage that personal brand to attract capital, right? Which is arguably one of the most important aspects to scaling in real estate. And then also even on the acquisition side, right? Your broker, your brand, if you know how to close, if you know how to have good relationships and, and meaningful relationships. And as I mentioned, you know, you know how to close. A lot of times you can get deals because of that, right? So that whole branding aspect, I think, can be looked at from a 360, you know, a holistic aspect of yeah. how you're able to leverage how people perceive you to be successful in real estate. And Yannick, to reiterate your point, when you think about a broker relationship, that's all about a personal brand. That broker is going to ask himself or herself, well, who do I have confidence in to close this deal? When they're selecting an offer, or they even get a deal off market, who, who do you think they're calling? They're calling a person that they have the most confidence in. And that's going to be based on their personal branding, either based on their, their experience with them or based on you know the conversations they've had. And all of those things matter. And that's why I say the personal brand isn't necessarily what you say about yourself. It's not the messages I come up with. It's what those brokers and those investors think when I'm not there to talk for myself. That's your brand. And if your brand is, hey, this dude's a closer, this guy, you know, is easy to work with. They do blah, blah, blah. That's what you're going to get. If they don't know you at all, then your personal brand is insignificant. I don't know this guy. I'm not calling him. I don't know who he is. So that's why the branding matters. That's why it's important to get yourself out there. And you can call it branding or whatever you want to call it. But the reality is you need to make sure that you are proactively shaping people's opinion of you in this industry, just like you would in any other you know, corporate profession. If you're an athlete, you need to make sure coaches look at you as, hey, this guy understands the playbook. He knows exactly what we need him to do. He works hard. That's your personal brand. You may not have ever said any of those things, right? But they monitored the way you operate, the way you respond, and that's going to be the personal brand they have for you. So it's very important to 
proactively manage what people think of you and to do your best to shine, you know, highlight yourself in the best capacity. Yeah, fantastic. I, I totally agree. I totally agree. I think in the world today where it's easy to compare you versus the next person and so on and so forth, having a personal brand is very easy, right? Because it can take years to build one, but one second to completely tear it down. So I completely agree with that. So if our listeners want to follow you and learn more about you and your ability to help them navigate through the hurdles of commercial real estate and also follow your podcast as well, you know, what's the best way for our listeners to get in contact with you? I think the best thing is to check out our sample deal package. So we put together a sample deal, whether you want to be an active investor or a passive investor. And it's just a great way to start wrapping your head around, you know, we talked about how to pick the right market, right? So we, we, we have a section in there. Where we talk about a market and it's a sample deal. It's not to be like the end all, but it's an example of how to look at these things. So you can check that out at kasmancapital.com slash sample deal. And then the thing that's cool is we also follow that with some emails that highlight, you know, seven questions you need to ask before investing in a deal. Things like that, that give you a little bit more context on what I'm looking for whenever I'm looking at a deal or an opportunity. And I think will help give you a little bit more context. On there as well, you'll be on our list. So you'll get information from us if you want to talk to us about investing or you're interested in coaching. We can you know, talk to you about all that there. And then lastly, as you alluded to, we do have our own podcast called Multifamily Insights, and that is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you listen to podcasts or, or stream, you can check it out there. That's perfect. Well, John, I really enjoyed our conversation today. We talked about your background, how you were able to transition. We just touched on personal branding. We talked about the commercial real estate market debt and equity. I mean, we just, there were a ton of nuggets on this podcast. So I'm very excited that we had a chance to have you on the show today. Absolutely. Hey, thank you for having me. I enjoyed our conversation. I look forward to staying in touch with you and continue to build on a connection. Absolutely. And thank you to our listeners again for tuning into another episode of the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. Let's take action. Be great today. And remember that real estate is a marathon, not a sprint. So run your own race. Thanks again, John. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.